You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for downloading Making a Killing. Last week, it was so much fun to be back with a bang, speaking to Mike Isaac about Uber and why their Uber-pumped approach is changing. This week, we're focusing on another company beloved by millennials, Netflix. It's telling that over the past decade, Netflix and chill has been one of the most popular entries in the Urban Dictionary. There was a brief moment when I really thought it did just mean watching movies. Anyway, according to Netflix's own stats, we now collectively watch 1 billion hours of content on their platform every week, streamed almost 150 million subscribers in 190 countries. It's easily the biggest subscription service on the planet. And with the acquisition of almost 10 million new subscribers in the first quarter of 2019, their best quarter ever, it's safe to say Netflix is everywhere. But for how long? Is omnipresent the same as omnipotent? Let's take a quick look at the house that Reed Hastings built. Over its two decades plus of existence, Netflix has done three things that no one thought possible. And by doing them before anyone else understood they really were possible, the company got a huge head start. All of these things help explain why the stock has soared some 8,500% in the last decade. Number one, Netflix is, of course, a subscription business. That's how the company makes its money. The two basic factors in that model are how many people are subscribed each month and what price they pay. When more people subscribe, revenues go up and you don't have to raise prices. Voila. In 2017, Netflix hit a major milestone, garnering more subscribers than all the cable TV channels in America combined. But with major new companies like Disney entering the streaming business, and in Disney's case, also removing its content from Netflix, will Netflix be able to maintain its phenomenal growth, let alone hang on to existing subscribers? Number two. Reed Hastings and team had the crazy foresight back in 2007 to launch the first streaming product long before the market was even ready for it. In essence, they bet the company on it. Competitors didn't see the value and dismissed streaming, giving Netflix time to develop the best streaming, the largest library of titles, and the biggest subscriber base. But can others catch up? They are certainly going to try. The third thing, House of Cards. 
Okay, Netflix Originals. But House of Cards, which got rave reviews from critics and fans and launched in 2013, marked a crucial turning point in Netflix's growth as a company. By releasing every episode of the show's first season simultaneously, Netflix introduced audiences to the concept of binge-watching. And, well, you know the rest of the story. But here's the thing. Content is increasingly expensive. In 2018, Netflix spent $12 billion in cash on content, more than any traditional film studio or television company. They're going to keep burning cash. Will that become a problem? Make no mistake, this is an incredibly aggressive company with a long-term plan to monopolize all our time. Remember the infamous 2017 tweet, sleep is my greatest enemy? There is no chilling going on here. CEO Reed Hastings has described Netflix business as a virtual circle. He says, we get more customers, we get more money, we can afford more content, we get more customers. But here's the thing about virtuous circles. They can turn vicious in an instant. And there are skeptics, some of whom even say Netflix is a Ponzi scheme because of the amount of cash it blows through. Cash that is recouped through, you guessed it, new subscribers. Major new competitors are coming. Is all of this a sign of tougher times to come? Sahil Patel wrote a piece for Digiday entitled, After a Long Winning Streak, Netflix's Vulnerabilities Are Becoming Clearer. My favorite line in the piece, even the Death Star had vulnerabilities. I'm looking forward to talking with Sahil, who has joined the Wall Street Journal, about what comes next for Netflix. So, The Office. Yes. Are you a fan? I am a fan. What does it mean that The Office, and along with other shows, are leaving Netflix? Uh, people have said that this is going to be a turning point for Netflix. Is it? I hedge against saying it's going to be a turning point for Netflix. Just take it back a little. A lot of the big media companies that are supposedly competitive with Netflix or or fear Netflix and see them as a as an maybe an existential threat, uh, for a long time did business with them. Right? It was it. it paid really well to license The Office and Friends and all these movies that you had to Netflix. And it was just a check that was rolling in and it looked really good in terms of a profit margin. Uh, now they are all investing in streaming services because they they know that the future of television, the future of entertainment is going to be heavily in, in streaming. And so now you have to make these really difficult decisions, right? The Office does really well on Netflix. A lot of people watch The Office on Netflix. A lot of people watch Friends on Netflix. Do we leave it there, collect that paycheck, or do we put it onto our own thing and hopefully drive subscribers to our own thing in lieu of going to Netflix to watch this? In terms of whether it will impact Netflix, I mean, you can't say no because 10 hours not spent binging Friends on Netflix is is still going to hurt them in some way. But to say it's going to be... I think catastrophic for Netflix is probably a little bit overblown. Were you surprised over the years as you watch the big media companies essentially collect pennies along the way while waiting for Netflix to eat them, the way in which they fueled their own destruction in a sense? Well, you know, I wouldn't say surprised because I don't think they really knew the extent to which they were helping Netflix. There are tons of stories out there. They just didn't figure now. it out? They didn't figure it out. No, I mean, there was there are tons of stories out there, right? They thought Netflix was the crazy one. They're going to pay us this much at this much of a premium for stuff that's sitting on our shelf? Like, okay, let's collect that money. Let's collect, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, show it on our on our balance sheet and say, hey, look at the in, incredible profits that we're driving quarter over quarter, year over year. They didn't see it five, 10 years in the future when they realized, oh, by licensing all this stuff to Netflix, now people are spending more time on Netflix and they're spending less time with us. Crap. But doesn't it sound incredibly obvious in retrospect that they should have seen this coming? 
Yes, in retrospect, obviously, right? But in the, I think I think one thing not to defend them too much because I think they should have seen it coming. Back then, no one really knew how big Netflix could be. I mean, Netflix maybe knew or had a hunch or at least made the the correct bets to make it happen. But we're talking ten years ago. I mean. I was a Netflix DVD subscriber when when streaming first came out. I'm like that's cool, I get to watch free movies. But I think it's safe to say it's hard to predict that something could become as big as it is until it happens. And you also have to realize, I mean, I mean, these are businesses, these are media companies, and what do they what do they run on? Can you show revenue growth quarter over quarter, year over year? And when you have all this free money coming in, it's hard to look away from it. You're not really thinking five, ten years out into the future. Unfortunately for them, now we live in an, in, a, in an industry that is entirely about five, 10 years from now versus what your revenue looks like year over year. What was the moment for you when you saw both covering Netflix or as a consumer who used it, that this was not just a niche product, that this was actually going to be the way the world was going? I think it goes back to their inevitable push into original programming, right? A lot of people like to talk about House of Cards and House of Cards was a big deal. But there was a lot of, um, let's say, derision among old media types being like, the the tech company is going to start making TV shows. They don't know how to do it. Well, House of Cards was made by a studio that knows how to make television. Netflix just paid the right amount to win the rights to it exclusively, right? It was a show that was being bitted on by at least HBO. So this wasn't just some run-of-the-mill, algorithmically created premium television product. It had big names attached. It had a really Emmy-worthy look to it. So when Netflix made that move and you started seeing, you know, posters of House of Cards everywhere. They did the they, they did the traditional playbook. When you have a big TV show or a big movie, what do you do? You don't do just run TV ads. You you take over billboards and, and buses and subways. And they did all of that, right? And lo and behold, very quickly, they started winning Emmy nominations. I think around that time when they said, hey, just because we're from Silicon Valley doesn't mean we can't play your playbook in terms of how to do entertainment and original programming correctly. I think that was sort of like, oh, okay, this is this is going to become a bigger and bigger deal. It was the moment where derision turned to fear, yeah, or at yeah. least to or just a little maybe bit of like, nervousness. Uh, yeah, nervousness is probably the <laughs> right. right way to put it. So I want to come back to this idea of algorithmically driven content because that's like, I think that's a key thing to the Netflix story. But before we go there, talk to me a little bit about Reed Hastings because he was a tech guy, not an entertainment guy, never worked in entertainment. Mm-hmm. And was that part of the reason that the networks were a little bit dismissive of Netflix, do you think? For sure. And, you know, not without cause. I mean, not to, not to call out any one in particular, but there's a lot of examples of tech companies trying to do television and entertainment and not doing it well. There are more failures in that area, both big and small, than we've ever seen in terms of success, right? No one has succeeded to the level What's of- What's the most profound one? I mean, you, you can talk about everyone from, from Xbox to, oh, right. to, to AOL to Yahoo. There were a lot of tech companies that tried to do original programming, television, whether it was short form, long form, whatever you want to call it, they tried. And I mean, how many of them are really considered major players in that area right now? Oh, it's, it's such a great observation because old media companies had history on their side, right? Yeah, like, we, they know had, and, we know how to do TV. And they, these guys don't. So they had a reason to shrug their shoulders at Netflix. And yet, yet this time they were wrong. They were wrong. And I think, I think what was interesting about Netflix is they didn't really try to break the mold in a lot of ways to, to just like go through it. Yes, watching television and movies uh, streamed 
through a, a device was inherently different. But it was still television. You were still watching TV shows, whether at 30 minutes, 60 minutes per episode. You're watching movies that were 90 minutes, two hours. The, the format didn't change, only the delivery of it changed, right? Instead of you having a cable cord or having a satellite, you were literally just going into an app through your Xbox or through your iPad or through a, some sort of co- internet-connected device, right? So the actual content didn't change much. And what they did very smartly was didn't go from the very beginning into original program. Like, no, let's buy stuff that people like to watch. We know people pay for HBO stars and Showtime because they like to watch movies and shows. Let's buy a lot of those movies and shows. And remember, Netflix in the beginning had a huge movie library. That's not as much today relative to what it was in the past, but they had a huge movie library. So they really built up this user experience of like, I can turn on Netflix and I can just watch movies that I've seen a million times, but I still love watching and just enjoy watching them. And that's how they were began to build that streaming subscriber base. Even the binging thing, like, let's be fair, the concept of watching multiple episodes of a same television show in one sitting is not unique and new to Netflix. People had Law & Order marathons. Right, forever. although they've somehow gotten credit for it. But... They get credit for it, right? But like, it, it, I have watched some of my favorite shows on USA Network 10 years ago, you I know, just to, on I a used Saturday to binge, I used to binge Law & Order. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, right? But again, what I think Netflix did was it made everything a lot more convenient. It was more on demand. It was whenever you wanted to. It wasn't programmed based on a channel where you had to watch it at a certain time of day. You could watch it whenever. And it had your favorite stuff, your favorite shows, your favorite movies. And they built up this, this incredible customer base. And then they did all the things that they now get celebrated for, which is the original programming and building this massive user base. So they did it correctly in a lot of ways, in a way that a lot of tech companies What's interesting is that as as you talk is that I'm thinking that Reed Hastings knew both what to change, what to do differently, but he also knew what to keep the same, mm-hmm. which strikes me as a pretty remarkable balancing right. act. Do you, do you agree with that? And do yeah, you, I think so. And do you give the credit to that to him? I would I would give him a ton of credit for that. I would I would also give uh, even though they were sort of like dragged into it uh, a lot of credit for the people who ultimately have turned Hulu into what it has become today. Look, the user behavior was there. there I, I, I don't have the stats on me in terms of how it is now versus back then, but piracy was a gigantic issue, right? People were streaming episodes on YouTube and, and, and all these downloading them from torrent sites. Like that was a rampant issue. There was plenty of data to tell you that people wanted to watch their favorite movies and TV shows on their computers or on their, you know, their internet connected TV devices on their iPads, right? One of, if not the biggest thing Netflix capitalized on was we see this behavior. Let's find them a, illegal ways of getting it because then they will come to us and they will pay us for it. They didn't start out with originals. They started out with basically hitting a consumer need at the time. So we watch a billion hours of content every week on Netflix. I'm sorry. I'm just stunned by that staggering figure. Does that make to your mind Netflix the most important entertainment company today? It's up there. If it's not number one, it's probably number two behind YouTube. It's just stunning figures, right, that they've come to monopolize so much of our time. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean that Netflix competitors, back to this idea, the people who should have been Netflix's competitors from the beginning, but perhaps didn't understand what they were, what does it mean that they're waking up today, taking back a little bit of content? We just had the announcement that Friends would be taken off Netflix along with The Office. Mm -hmm. They're launching their own streaming services that are going to compete with Netflix. What's this landscape like? Much more noisier and messier and and cluttered than it was in the past, and it's going to become even more so when these services actually launch. Right, Disney's coming out with it, Disney Plus at the end of the year. Yeah. NBC and Warner Media have theirs coming out next year. They've all woken up to I wouldn't say Netflix alone as a threat. I think they've all woken up to the to streaming as an existential game changer for their businesses. Sorry, but linear television is not going to be the future. It's it's going to be a piece of your business going forward, 
a diminishing piece, but it's going to be a, still a vital, important piece. But as more and more time is spent in on-demand and just streaming environments, you have to have a strategy for that. Why are they all waking up now? Because the numbers are finally real. <laughs> Cord cutting really, really became a concern, and I'm putting that lightly, in the last two, three years. It was when Disney said, oh, we lost subscribers on ESPN, the most valuable piece of real estate right. in television. We lost subscribers, the most expensive channel to buy, on cable at least. It got real, really fast. It's not out of like any kind of forward thinking. And some of them are more forward thinking. I mean, I'll, give, I'll give credit to some companies. They don't get sort of the same level of attention as some of the newer ones that are coming out. But like CBS has been playing in the streaming game for four and a half years now, close ha to five. Have they really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have their SVOD product with uh, all access. Show, they own Showtime, so they have Showtime's SVOD as well. Right. Uh, but they also have these free streaming services for news and live sports news and entertainment news. They're much smaller products, don't get me wrong, relative to obviously Netflix. But they've made efforts. And if, if they launched four and a half years ago, that means it took at least... A year, maybe two prior to that to actually get the pieces in place to make this a viable working product. But yeah, to go back to your question, they're waking up now because their their hand has been forced. So amid this changing landscape with Disney Plus, with NBC Universal, what's the biggest threat to Netflix? Can can you say, or is it just that the landscape is becoming much more complicated? It's hard to believe that any of the upcoming new streaming services will seriously debt Netflix. I think really, even Disney. Even Disney. I don't think I don't think it's an e either or. I don't think you paying fifty you know, a family paying fifteen dollars for Netflix and seven dollars for Disney is like, oh crap, I can only do one or the other. I think it's multiple reasons. One, um, it's as you said uh in your intro, right? It's a hundred and fifty million subscriber head start. That's a really good head start. Right. <laughs> and it's gonna be even more by the time Disney launches, and by the time Disney builds any meaningful scale. Netflix has seen this coming, and they're making their bets. There's a reason they're buying kids' animation companies, and, like, they know what they're doing in terms of, like, what they what kind of program they need to keep people around and to add more subscribers. So I don't see them as direct threats to Netflix. And I think the other thing, and I think maybe the most fundamental thing that people need to focus on when it comes to Netflix is Netflix is not trying to replace HBO. It's not trying to replace Showtime, Bravo. It's trying to replace it all. <laughs> right? With the it's not trying of, to replace one thing, no, no, it's trying no, to replace everything. Netflix isn't is a television network. Netflix is is Comcast. It's DirecTV. It is every channel with the exception of live news and live sports. That's the only two things they don't have. And for the foreseeable future, they've said that they're not interested in that, right? But so remove that element of it. Everything yeah. else you can get a version of on Netflix. You want Emmy-winning dramas? Got it. You want unscripted lifestyle shows? We got Queer Eye. They are looking to replace all of pay TV. Now, pay TV costs anywhere from, if you include the new virtual services, anywhere from $40, $50 to $100 plus or more per month right. for all these channels. Right. Or you have Netflix for 15 bucks a month. So I think Netflix's value proposition is so good right now that they actually probably over the next, I don't know, five, 10 years will be able to routinely raise prices. And there will be a significant backlash towards that because it's become such an integral part of our lives. How? Okay, let me ask you, on a month-to-month -month basis, how often are you thinking about your Netflix subscription? Do you, do you often like think about canceling? No, never. That's what I'm saying, right? right? I don't think most people, especially in established markets like the US, UK, you're not thinking every month like, uh, is, is this the month I unsubscribe? It's part of your diet now, the way Spotify is, the way a lot of other things that you pay for on a monthly basis is. doesn't mean they don't have to worry about churn, but by being first movers, they've, you kind of are just used to paying Netflix. 
And that's a significant advantage when you have competitive threats. Ultimately, then, is this dynamic more negative for those who would compete with Netflix? Because we are bounded by something, right? We are yeah. bounded by still our human need to sleep yeah. and just and just by the sheer messiness of too many subscriptions, right? Yeah. So if Netflix is a given, what does that mean for NBC Universal and for Disney? Are they then facing a tougher road than they might expect? I would like to believe maybe that's a little bit of the optimist in me that they know how tough a road it's going to be. Um, but forget the other things that you pay for, forget Spotify and the other, you know, your newspaper, magazine subscriptions that you might have. Most people have some combination of Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu. You're probably going to keep your Netflix. Most people are probably going to keep Amazon because two-day shipping at the very least. Plus they got movies and TV shows. Maybe you like Hulu because you like to watch television and you don't need to watch at 8 p.m. on a Thursday night, but you want to watch that episode on, on the weekend where you can catch up. So you're already two to three deep. Right. So I think what we're going to really be looking at is the newer entrants fighting for whatever that particular consumer's diet is. Is it if it's four, you're fighting for one or two spots. If it's five, you got more. Right. That's what you're fighting for. That seems more likely to me than saying some of the, one of these are going to knock off uh, a Netflix. I have to admit, it sounds like crumbs fighting over crumbs. It is, it is in a lot of ways. I'm a little bit more confident in Disney than I am in some of the others. Disney being Disney has the brand and, and, the, and the existing content right? and the existing content and the existing infrastructure and business to like feed it into this just massive Disney machine. But you're right. I mean, a lot of these companies are hoping that they're not scraps, but for the foreseeable future, that seems to be what we're looking at. So right? you'd argue that the slightly slowing subscriber growth is just a blip or just a thing and not necessarily. Slowing, yeah. I think the slowing subscriber growth is more indicative of Netflix's size in the U S and develop markets than it is competitive forces. Right. Trees. Might change, but right now it seems more like when you have 60 million subscribers or whatever the number is now in the U.S., let's be fair, pay TV at its peak was 90. I mean, and that was also a balloon number, right? So, like, I think them saying it's going to slow is more be like, hey, we're getting closer to the the, the law of large numbers. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's this issue of subscribers, where the subscribers go, but also what happens to Netflix's content? And what about licensing? Do you expect these licensing deals to get tougher? I mean, there's long been this argument that networks shouldn't license to Netflix because they were unleashing this monster. Mm -hmm. And now that networks seem to know that, does, does the licensing game become trickier? And does that become a problem for Netflix? It's, it's definitely going to be trickier. It's a problem in the sense that something that you wanted might be a little bit tougher to get now is inherently an issue or a problem. But I do think a lot of it is, again, just a little bit overblown. One reason is I don't think it's going to happen at the full scale that people sort of are saying it is. Let's go to the current example, right? Yep. Friends is going to get off right. Netflix. Right. Warner Brothers, which is also owned by Warner Media, just sold Sandman. Netflix. It's going to be a Netflix original. Uh-huh. Netflix still pays a premium for content that it buys from outside studios and and, and producers. And, so and, the whole and thing is a lot more incestuous than... It's a lot more, yeah. It's a lot more complicated because it's hard to walk away from the money. Remember, we are talking about businesses, whether it's a licensing division or a production division, where you are measured by growth and revenue, right? And now you're telling them, full stop, stop doing what your job is, stop licensing stuff out. So it's not going to be a full stop. I think. I think... What's going to be messier is now you're going to see all these companies like really like hand ring and like trying to like figure out, okay, well, what do we sell them exclusively? What do we keep exclusively? What do we try to share? 
and Netflix would be if they're interested in the property are going to be willing to play ball and buy it. It's more of a media company problem than a Netflix problem, in my opinion. When it comes to licensing, are there must-have shows, or is it? Are there a lot of things that will work as long as you can get enough, or does it have to be driven by one or two key shows? It's a fair argument to say I don't think Friends is driving subscribers. I don't think The Office is driving subscribers anymore okay. for Netflix. Okay. I think you're keeping subscribers. Okay. Because sometimes you just want to lay on your couch and watch five hours of The Office. The thing about Netflix is a lot of the originals, with the exception of. Orange is the New Black and maybe a handful of others, most of the originals have not gone beyond three seasons. That's an issue that they all probably need to figure out down the road, I'm assuming, are, are working on. You need you need shows with longevity to build the kind of loyalty where on a Sunday afternoon, I'm like, screw it, I'm just going to watch this for hours, right? Right. But I don't think licensed programming drives subscriptions to the level that originals do. Okay. A new show that you market, like, I want to check this out because it stars this person, et cetera, right? I think it drives usage, which ultimately is a big driver for retention. Yep. So I think when it comes to these licensed programs, the greater difficulty a Warner Media or NBC are going to have is in getting people to subscribe to the service because, yes, they'll love The Office, but I, I don't think as many people will go to these services and subscribe because friends in The Office are there. That's a that's an add-on. How does Netflix keep the quality of originals high, even as it reaches to do more and more? And do you think that the number of hits has been impressive relative to the sheer number of shows it's cranked out? Do you do you try to think about that ratio? The batting okay. average is, is definitely different than HBO's, right? Yeah, um, definitely. They, Netflix can afford more middle of the of the pack shows than an HBO can. But again, it goes back to Netflix is not HBO. Netflix is trying to be everybody. You might not like Adam Sandler, but a lot of people do. And he might make a movie that you think is crap or mediocre, but a lot of people love it. And it's on Netflix, right? And it's a new original that they can only get on Netflix. So that will drive subscriptions. So I think with Netflix, it's twofold. One, look at just in the past year or two years, like... They've signed pretty expensive, high-profile talent deals with Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, Kenya Barris, who does Blackish uh, right. uh, on ABC. Like these are big-time creators and 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 talent who know how to make great shows and great movies. That's not going to stop. I mean, money runs Hollywood, right? If Netflix says, "I will give you the hundred million dollars," please, Ben Affleck and friends, go make Triple Frontier. <laughs> they know the talent that they need to get to make high quality original stuff that is exclusive to them. Another element of that, you know, the deals they have with, um, with Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes, et cetera, that's produced in house. So they're not paying a, a premium to a studio like Warner brothers to make it for them. It's actually more cost efficient for them to produce more of their original programming in house because they own it entirely. They don't have to pay extra money to get it. So I think Netflix can keep up the quality because I mean, they're now pretty much Hollywood. They know who they need to get and what kind of stuff they need to get to make it work. So back to that hundred million they, they spent and back to the 13 billion they spent on new content deals in 2018, Netflix used to generate cash, but ever since they started spending and spending and spending on content, they have not. And the company uses obviously the high yield debt market to finance its cash needs. Do you see this as a risk? Yeah, I mean, any kind of significant debt is a risk. And I think it's one of the biggest things that people go to in saying this can't last forever or it's a Ponzi scheme when you have, when you're raising debt to you know pay off debt uh, and have these insane, unheard of content obligations. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute risk. If you say it's not a risk, then you're- Ignoring reality. Ignoring reality. <laughs> you can't under- state sort of just how warped people feel by Netflix when it comes to the entertainment industry, right? Uh, I've had executives. Warped. 
I've had executives everywhere from from Fox to Disney to NBC just like privately will complain like, you know, we're judged based on revenue growth. We're judged on profitability. We're judged on these things. And then you have a company here that we are threatened by that can just tell the market we're not going to be profitable. We're not going to be revenue positive or cash flow positive for years. And the market doesn't care. They don't care. So I can understand why it's frustrating to to media companies to hear that and see that, right? The valuation go higher and higher, being like, well, they're still burning through cash. But I think we're also seeing, look, we're seeing examples of it. Like, you know, I think there were there were reports just in the last week or so where Netflix doesn't have unlimited cash, right? They're they're making a more sincere effort. I think, I believe it was the um, the information that had a report that's saying that you know we want to be a little bit more efficient in how we spend on our, our original movies and just our original programming, which makes sense. You're you're becoming a more and more mature programming business. You want to make sure your dollars are spent the most wisely. In terms of how much they've racked up, yes, it's an absolute risk. If the subscriber growth stalls globally, not yeah. just in the U.S., right, yeah. globally for consecutive quarters something that stock price takes a hit. If they are not able to turn out as consistently new, refresh, original programming that people want to pay for, that Reed, Hast- Reed Hastings' virtuous cycle could turn vicious, could turn, right? But, but we haven't seen the evidence of that yet. That's kind of the weird thing, right? Uh, we haven't seen the evidence of that abating completely yet. Yes, there are external factors that we should be thinking about, right? Like, I think it's fair to say that Netflix is trying to be a business that could be, let's say, 250, 300, 400 million global subscribers, right? Well, to get to that, you need markets like India and China, which are going to be incredibly difficult to penetrate for different reasons. And they're not going to be as friendly to an outside service trying to be a market leader in their market. So that's the thing that they need to figure out. And you have competitive services rising up, not just here, but uh, all across the globe. So there are definitely risks in taking up the amount of debt that they have. But it kind of also goes back to, look, it's a it's a service that's $15 a month. If they go up to 20, that's a significant raise in revenue. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be that simple or easy for them. But there's room. They're not, there's room. Yeah. There's absolute risk. But you know that's what, again, just to go, and I, uh, I'm not trying to be, not trying to defend them too much because I, I, I agree to, with a lot of media companies saying it's kind of insane that we're talking about a company that is, able to just raise this much debt, tell the market they're not going to be profitable for a while and everyone being cool with it. It's kind of mind-boggling. But it's mind-boggling because it's the era we're in now, right? It's so not, much short-term pressure not, for so many companies except for the few. It's who not, have, it's not yeah. profit growth. It's it's subscriber growth. It's, right. it's we know you're growing to an end goal that we believe you can get to or we are making an educated guess that you will be able to get to. So here's the And a few companies you're... get that dispensation, right? Right, right. So an incredible amount of risk. But, you know, to their credit, they have never shied away from it. They're pretty open about how much debt that they're taking on, how much more they'll take on. I've had this conversation a couple of times with just sources in the industry. In so many ways, it feels like the ultimate boomer bust story in entertainment. It's either going to do the impossible, do it all, yeah. or it's going to come tumbling down. Right. I guess that is the thing with virtuous or vicious circles. They have to keep becoming more virtuous yeah. and they have to do it all or yeah. at some point it breaks. And when it breaks it and it goes the other way, it reverses with astounding rapidity. Right. Right. And That's I think a version think, of what your sources are saying. Right. And there are a lot of people in, in media who think at some point that has to break. Right. Uh, I can't necessarily disagree with that because you can't be perfect forever. You can't have an endless winning streak. But 
again, they're in a really good position right now. What's uh, fascinating as you were talking, I, I was thinking that the issue with Amazon may not be so much fighting over subscribers as it may be fighting over content. And it's fascinating that Amazon is one of the other companies you can point to that has that same dispensation from investors, right? right. And so Amazon can pay anything they want for content. And that actually, you could see that nexus becoming yep. part of the problem for Netflix, right? Yep. In, the, in the war for content and the, in, in the way in which a war between Amazon and Netflix could actually drive up the price of content even more because they are two companies that don't have to care, right. at least for right now. Well, especially Amazon. I think you can make a, uh, to a certain degree, an argument that Disney can one day play a role in that as well, right? Because for Disney, it's, yes, they have to make hit movies, hit TV shows, but for Disney Plus to, uh, to succeed, it just needs to be folded into the entire Disney umbrella, right? Like, at, at the end of the day, if Disney can get more people buying merchandise and 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 cruise tickets and and going <laughs> to the parks, right? Isn't that ultimately a win as part of their IP strategy, so to speak? Yeah. What's really interesting right now is, at least for Netflix, the business is the content. What happens down the road when we see more companies like an Amazon, where the business isn't the content, the content feeds the is part of the business. And you um, argued in your piece that that may mean Netflix has to do something other than subscriptions. Do you do you think that's likely? I think it's likely, and you're beginning to see it in terms of merchandising. And I think barring a significant change in fortune, it's more likely that Netflix follows a Disney model. I think, you know, you sell Stranger Things cups and T-shirts and license that IP and make create these new revenue streams right if they're able to successfully create more original programming that is the kind of like loyalty breeding hit that like a stranger things is i think they'll they'll they can build a meaningful commerce and 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 you know sort of different types of revenue streams on the question of advertising i'm i'm skeptical at least in the near term i don't see a scenario and this is usually the kind of things that people call back when it inevitably happens but uh in the near term i find it very difficult, it's just very difficult to see Netflix adopting uh, traditional forms of advertising. Back to this notion of what could end the virtuous circle. One thing that often does is is people. And I was thinking when I listened to a few things Reed Hastings said, that he said Sleep and Fortnite are bigger competitors to Netflix than any rival companies. And he said, you know, there's a ton of competition out, out there and Disney and Apple add to it a little bit more. But frankly, I doubt it will be material. Do you see any creeping signs of arrogance in Reed Hastings? Uh, it sounds a little bit now. Uh, <laughs> I, it's one of quotes out it's of actually, context. It's, it's, it's so overblown. I love it it's it is arrogant but it works for them it's such a savvy way to tell the market how you're thinking it's a it seems very progressive and forward look every minute i go play Fortnite, i am not going to amc to watch a movie right it's a it's a part of my french it's a bs statement every time i'm sleeping i am not going you know i'm not watching nbc on thursday nights like asleep in video games and all these things are always competitors but it's savvy in that by saying that you are you're you're telegraphing to the market like here's how we're thinking of our service as this global platform for all consumption of 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 high quality video tv film maybe more interactive programming down the road right is there anything frightening about a world where if netflix does if if netflix is the boom story if it does completely work is there anything frightening about a world where netflix controls all of our content anyone controlling anything is a scary scary idea i think as big as Netflix is today, there's data that shows they only own like 10% of viewing time in the U.S., which to them means there's a lot of room for us to grow. 
I think people will always be looking for new choices. I think that's what it goes back to the, I don't think it's Netflix or anything else. Yes. They're trying to replace all of television, but I think people still will have Netflix and they'll, you know, have their other services to go out to. I think Disney's going to do well. I think their service is going to do really well. They have the best IP in the business and the best content in the business and the franchises to, to make it happen. So Yes, the idea of Netflix controlling all of our consumption is scary, but I just don't think it's possible for them to do that. Do, do that. Whether we're talking about, honestly, film or television, or we're talking about other forms of entertainment, right? YouTube's a big big deal. You know, Fortnite is a growing deal. So, like, so Reed Hastings and the company just put that out there, but that's their, that's, yeah. that's their thing. They want global domination, but I think it, they're not going to be the only one that, if they succeed, they won't be, they won't be the only choice. Is that in the end what Reed Hastings wants? Do you think global, global domination? I, I, mean, would, I would say he would love a, a company that has 400 million paying subscribers around the world. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I mean, that's, again, that's how they've positioned the company to the market, right? That's why they have this ability and this room to grow and keep investing in, in content to make it happen. Well, it's a fascinating time and I look forward to continuing to read what you write. Thank, thank you, you for coming on. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. So I was surprised that Sahil was relatively sanguine about Netflix's prospects. I am a numbers girl, and to me, the cash burn, with no real end in sight, is scary, particularly in an era where interest rates may start to rise. I find it fascinating that his industry sources talk about boom or bust, either Netflix rules our entire entertainment universe, or the whole thing falls apart. That's the thing about virtuous circles. It's really hard to predict in advance what might make them turn vicious. So just because you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. That's why I don't think Netflix investors should relax, despite Sahil's relative sanguinity. Anyway, I also found one thing about this interview incredibly reassuring. Maybe it's not great for Netflix investors, but I love, love that the company cannot yet use data to predict hits. The machines haven't figured us out, at least not yet. There is hope for the human race. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. <laughs>